You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast with me, Olivia Nelson. Welcome back to ASPE's special podcast series, the Sydney Dialogue Summit Sessions. This short series features conversations with leading government, industry and civil society voices on the sidelines of the Sydney Dialogue. In the fifth episode of the series, Dr. Alex Caples, Director of Cyber, Technology and Security at ASPE, speaks to Dr. Dirk Hager, Head of Operational Cybersecurity at Germany's Federal Office for Information Security. They discuss cybersecurity and critical infrastructure, emerging cybersecurity threats, including the rising threat of ransomware, and the challenge governments face in regulating technology given the rapid pace at which it is developing. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Alex Caples. I'm the Director of Cyber Technology and Security with ASPE, and I'm joined by Dr. Dirk Hager, Head of Division Operational Cybersecurity for the Federal Office for Information Security in Germany. Uh, Dirk's just chaired an amazing panel at our Sydney Dialogue Day 2, so we're really uh, glad to have you here, Dirk, just to answer a few follow-on questions. I wonder if we could just start with a very quick overview for those who, who don't know. Uh, the, the role in remit of the Federal Office for Information Security in Germany. Our main task for the last 30 years was protecting the federal government, giving out advice how to operate IT systems in a secure way, and even manufacturing IT crypto systems so that the communication between uh, our agencies and maybe the foreign office with all the embassies all over the world can be done in a secure way that nobody can tap in uh, into this information. Um, our role has changed a little bit in the last 10, 15 years because prevention was not good enough anymore. Uh, we saw more and more successful cyber attacks so it, uh, we in, uh, invested in detection of those attacks and reaction, uh, incident response when such an uh, attack was successful. And that is my task. I'm not responsible for prevention. Um, I'm responsible for detecting attacks against the government network in Germany and doing incident response if such an attack was successful. Additionally, Critical infrastructure is, was more and more important. It's more and more important also in Germany. So it's not the, the task of the BSI is not limited to the federal government anymore. We are more and more concentrating on the private sector, the critical infrastructure, giving guidance papers to them and also giving out more and more regulations that they have to follow our guidance papers. Mm, I think that's a, that's a reflection, obviously, of the increasingly um, the, the difficulty in disentangling the work of government and and the private sector uh, in in terms of sorry what I'm, the point I'm going to try and get to is that kind of the idea that private sector and government are so interwoven in many of their activities that mm. uh, that essentially you can see why there was the need to branch out and to start to to mm. inform the private sector of that work. I don't think it's about the entanglement between okay. private sector and the government. It's between the society depends on critical infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And uh, what does it help Germany if our federal government is being protected, if the society itself is, oh, not, sorry. Uh, critical infrastructure, yes, is not protected? So we um, think it's uh, we, we had to put some pressure on the critical infrastructure companies that they invest in cybersecurity. 
Sure. I think that reflects that does reflect the journey that, that Australia's been on and certainly a number of countries uh, around the world have been on in perhaps the last 10 to 15 years. Um, but also, may I say, before we go into the other questions, how fantastic it is to have somebody who's really looking at this from a very operational point of view, which I think is a, a fresh kind of set of insights. What, um, from, from your point of view, obviously you're operating in a German context and in an EU context as well. What are the main and emerging cybersecurity threats that you're observing at the moment in, in Germany and the EU? It's not only about emerging cybersecurity threats. The main threat we have right now is cybercrime and ransomware. And it's not emerging, it's, it's increasing. But mm -hmm. it started uh, more than 10 years ago, but it's getting better, uh, worse and worse. Uh, the criminals are increasing their skills. And even on the protection side, we are getting better, but the bad guys are getting better faster. And so often the way. Um, is that, to your, to your mind, when you're talking about cybercrime and ransomware, do you have a sense of whether that's state-based actors or, or whether that's malicious criminals or a combination of the two? Attribution being very difficult in this space, I know. Yeah, but they are mainly simply criminals. They are operating from East Europe, maybe in a quite a safe harbor. The prosecution in Russia for those criminals isn't really high because normally they don't attack companies in Russia. They attack companies in the Western world. So it's a uh, yeah, free go for them. Uh, if you look at the other direction, due to the war in the Ukraine, we have activists attacking Russia. And uh, uh, we might complain about Russia not going against the cybercrime people. The Western world is not going against those activists attacking Russia. So it's another point of view. And uh, this is something which is maybe you can say it's an emerging threat because today those activists are attacking Russia because they are the bad ones in the moment. But um, yeah, maybe in a few weeks or a few years, another country is being the bad guy, maybe as Israel with the Palestinians is being classified as a bad guy and being attacked. So uh, this is something which I don't really like in the moment, that Ukraine is using the hackers all over the world for attacking Russia, and it's they are organizing it. And once the, the war is over, and we have those activists which know how to, uh, how a good organization goes, and maybe try another target. That's certainly an interesting point around the need for uh, regulation in the space, but also about how we apply that regulation and making sure that there's a kind of short-term and longer-term view around that. I think uh, no one would deny that Ukraine has found that, that kind of ability to almost crowdsource activists and cyber activity um, to work very much in its favour. It's certainly been a really just not necessarily a deciding factor, but certainly a, a key factor in um, in the conflict. Um, but you do make a good point about needing to sort of think about how we future-proof uh, the way forward there. So if I can uh, move a little bit into some of the uh, legislation around the EU, um, of which much, I think, is the EU famed for having a raft of legislation and regulation. Um, the European Commission's just proposed a, a new Cyber Resilience Act that was late last year that sets out cybersecurity-related requirements for products with with digital elements, quote-unquote. Um, although that CRA is not yet in force, it is likely, I think, to be passed. So 
very interested to hear from somebody who's having to grapple with that at the coal face, what that would change for manufacturers and developers and distributors. Hmm. Well, the legislation we have in Europe or in Germany about cybersecurity is aimed at the user of IT systems. So um, critical infrastructures using IT or let's say banks or even government agencies, they are all using IT. And uh, all our guidance paper and legislation is about how to use those, these IT systems in a secure way. And honestly, we are struggling. It does not really work. And the Cyber Resilience Act is something which lay the burden also on the manufacturers of software. It's, uh, yeah, they give out software with a lot of, uh, yeah, security vulnerabilities in it and, uh, and fix it via patches. And, um, but you can go in Germany to a supermarket and buy a new smartphone and you are not informed about How long do you get patches for this smartphone? And this will change in the future that when you buy something, you get, you, you can make an informed decision, uh, between do I get patches for two years or five years or even 10 years? And you, and when you look, uh, that's the private sector, the citizens in, in Europe. But if you are operating a critical infrastructure, then even this is not enough. Your, your, um, plans are, have to produce maybe 15 or 20 years or even 30 years. And there must be a, a way to uh, ensure that you still got updates for your vital IT systems in the future. And I hope that this Cyber Resilient Act will change this. Uh, it will help the operators of those essential services to be more secure in the, in the future. Excellent. Thank you. So so essentially that that will take... Uh, responsibility back through almost the supply chain to manufacturer level, purely for the for the sectors and and the entities that are operating in critical infrastructure. Is that that's right? <laughs> the Cyber Resilience Act is aimed at uh, to protect the consumer of IT systems, and it doesn't really matter if it's a private consumer or if it's a critical infrastructure okay. who is using these IT systems. Excellent. Thank you. That's an interesting take. It will be interesting to see how manufacturers respond to that, particularly with the degree of, um, I, I mean, how quickly technology moves. It will be interesting to see whether or not you, you look at then at built-in obsolescence over a very short period of time and new, new um, mobile phones, for example, coming out every couple of years rather than hanging onto a mobile phone and patching it. So it'll be just interesting to see how the market adapts to those kinds of requirements on the Cyber Resilience, from the Cyber Resilience Act, if yeah. it passes. There's already, as there are problems with it already known. So um, if you buy something new, I think it's totally easy and, and correct it, that companies have to follow the Cyber Resilience Act. But if you have an old system running, how to update it? If you update only parts of it, do you also have to yeah. update all the rest of it? So that's, um, it's, it's getting complicated mm -hmm. uh, if it's something new no problem uh, but if yeah 
patching old systems or upgrading old systems. This is uh, not so easy. And uh, I don't know what they will put into legislation, but they have to, to tackle this task too. Yeah, the question of legacy or grandfathering perhaps as a means of kind of giving you a firm cutoff date and giving manufacturers some certainty about just how far they need to go and for how long or how far back they need to go. If I can move you, we talked about uh, critical infrastructure um, just just as part of that Cyber Resilience Act there. Um, Dirk, the, the German government at the moment, just in the last couple of days, has announced that it's conducting a general review of telecom tech suppliers at the moment, and that review considers all of the critical components of the country's mobile phone networks, including, uh, although it is country agnostic, it does include components provided by Huawei and ZTE. Uh, I think... Australia, as with other a range of other countries, has has uh, had an ongoing conversation about how to balance its relationship with a key economic partner against potential security risks. I'm just interested to understand that where that conversation is in Germany at the moment, given that this is an immediate review that you're needing to address. Probably you'll have to go home from here and have to think about how to address this. Um, Germany did have an different approach to 5G than most other nations. It, uh, here in Australia, you had a ban for this uh, Chinese uh, uh, hardware stuff. In uh, the discussion in Germany, uh, and it was even led by the agency I'm working for, is, is quite convinced that confidentiality is not really an issue of the vendor you are using for building up a 5G network. Um, because you can have end-to-end -end encryption in Germany quite easily. And uh, even those um, software on smartphones like WhatsApp, they are all using end-to-end -end encryption. So you don't really, really have to care uh, who's the vendor for your backbone for 5G. But this has changed a little bit due to the uh, war, in the, uh, war in the Ukraine and also due to COVID-19, I think the supply chain and um, so availability was getting more and more important. And I was uh, the argument that nobody can spy into your conversation. I think that's valid, but it's not enough. You also have to consider this availability issue. And let's say two or three years ago, what can China get out of um, a kill switch in in, in the telecom infrastructure. The case which means that you, they can send a packet to the, let's say, German network and also uh, the hardware which sees this packet simply stops working. Mm -hmm. And being quite sure that this is an unrealistic assumption that a, a nation state would do it because what can they gain from it? But due to the war Russia against Ukraine, it's not some decisions from, from leaders are not really uh, yeah, logical. <laughs> and uh, which German politicians would take the risk that, uh, to depend on illogical decisions from other nation states? Mm -hmm. So I think we, that's why we are reconsidering, was it really a good idea to uh, ignore this problem, this, this skills which I don't think it's implemented in it, but not today, but maybe in the future or with an update. So it's, um, yeah, we think about this decision right now. 
That's a fascinating kind of answer. A few things to unpack there really in terms of the original position of it's about user privacy and encryption being the solution to user privacy versus uh, I, I suppose now that that thinking about not just availability of of uh, components um, and needing to diversify on that front, but equally the, the use of uh, those that componentry by malicious actors to actually affect some kind of kinetic or offensive attack. It's a really interesting um, thing to think about. And I, I guess Ukraine, Ukraine, as you say, has thrown that into very um, sharp relief. On that, as far as the privacy piece goes and end-to-end -end encryption, um, I know, Dirk, that some of your remit is also law enforcement and you're looking at cybercrime. Uh, one of the issues with end-to-end -end encryption, I suppose, from a law enforcement point of view, at least in Australia, is uh, if you are looking for evidentiary collection and you're looking to serve warrants uh, on uh, and, and to really essentially to track criminal activity through text or messaging via something like a WhatsApp and an end-to-end -end encrypted application, um, you don't actually, you're not actually able to collect that uh, that evidence, generally speaking, um, without having to go to the back end almost to the servers. And even then, depending on the application that you're using, it's quite a difficult task. So um, that's a bit of a knock-on effect of, of um, relying on end-to-end -end encryption as opposed to the component side of it. Is that something that you're also having to grapple with? In Germany, we have this debate about end-to-end -end encryption since the 90s. And um, the, the 90s BS... was a great time. <laughs> and uh, the BSI, my agency, always advocates for end-to-end -end encryption. And of course, law enforcement advocates that they must have a chance to look into the data traffic, into the uh, telephone ports and so on. But I think that the law enforcement guys miss the opportunity or don't see the opportunities they have today. They, they compare it in the 80s, of course, it wiretapping was possible. They could tap into the communication and, and look into the content, what the people were talking about. Um, but today we are doing so much via the internet and they could get a lot of information, not from the content, what people are talking about, but to whom they are talking, what websites they are contacting. And I think uh, the internet gave the uh, law enforcement so much more information than they had in the 80s from wiretapping. So in my opinion, they shouldn't really complain about what they have lost with end-to-end -end encryption. They sh should look at, what, uh, at the new opportunities they get about all the connections they can monitor now. The advantages of metadata, in fact, yeah, excellent. Thanks, Dirk. So your your work obviously covers a huge remit around both cybersecurity, critical infrastructure, to some extent, cybercrime as well. Um, if you had an opportunity to to make one change uh, that you think would make a tangible, positive difference to to cybersecurity, cr critical infrastructure security, what do you think that would be? I think one of the big issues we have with IT security or generally using IT is that it's not really well understood how difficult it is to secure IT systems, to operate them in a secure way. And uh, I have been in 
uh, at university times and even at my agency, once in a while I do administration by myself. And the administrators are not very well liked. If It's totally normal if the IT system is running smoothly and they are the bad guys if something goes wrong. And it, it's a really hard job for them and to make life easier for them. It's the big task for the future, I think. It's on, on the one hand, uh, the CEOs should recognize what they have with their administrators, maybe pay-wise or whatever. That, that's okay. one thing. Uh, the other thing is they get a lot of patch information from the vendors, uh, from the products they are uh, using internally. And we need automation in this. In the moment, uh, different vendors are using different standards to give out the uh, security advisories. And uh, a lot of time is being spent reading papers. And uh, does it affect me, this uh, this patch? Uh, do I have to implement it? And we need a common standard for security advisors, machine readable to make the life of the administrators easier. I think that's, uh, I really would like to see uh, so that can they can more concentrate on operating stuff, making them secure than reading uh, nonsense more or less. <laughs> Thanks, Dirk. That's a fairly, uh, I guess, a plea really to invest both in cybersecurity administration, but also for manufacturers to invest in appropriate at, at the code level and at the manufacturing level in a common standard and in, and in automation. Uh, thank you so much, Dirk. I really appreciate that. I realise that you've also sacrificed your lunch whilst um, while sitting here to do the podcast with me. So I greatly appreciate both uh, the time that you've spent um, chairing uh, the very excellent panel earlier today as well as the time that you've spent with us today. I'm sure listeners will have a, a really uh, uh, be really pleased to hear some insights from, from the EU and from people who are, are doing it slightly differently. It's always great to have that kind of diversity of opinion, which is why we hold the Sydney Dialogue in the first place. So thanks so much, Dirk. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. That's all we have time for today on Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.